God is inviting the kids to go. <clears throat> Goodbye, guys. Hope you survived this morning with Pastor Scott. Mom and Dad get a good look at them. Maybe the last time you see them. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, well, let's get the laugh. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. And uh, I always say that phrase. I hope you understand that the house of the Lord is right here. Right? This is just a building, but uh, we're blessed to be a part of it all. So trust you've had a good week. Find your place in Matthew, if you will, beginning chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses today. You say, yeah, right. We are going to do it. I'm going to keep you here as long as I can possibly keep you here. Gosh, you guys are just a tough crowd this morning. <laughs> this, this must be what a stand-up comic feels like. Yeah. So keep on coming up with something to get everybody on fire. Tough crowd. All right. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for just a, a blessed week. It's been a hot week, weather-wise, but what a joy it is to live in a nation where we can get inside of a building, at least most of us. And we do pray for the homeless around us. Charlottesville has quite a bit of that. And we pray for those souls that need to know Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the, the joys of this life. Thank you for the struggles. Lord, thank you that this world is not the end. We have a better place waiting for us. Lord, as we've been singing this morning now, just lifting up our praises to you in our thoughts, in our conversations, in our Sunday school hour, we'll pause just again for a little while to focus our minds and our hearts on you, that we may be more effective for you, better servants, more faithful. Lord, thank you for remembering that we are but the dust of the ground. Thank you that... You know that without your spirit in us, we have nothing to offer you. We come as broken people this morning, just poured out and spilled out before you, and just ask that you'd fill us up, that your spirit would speak to our hearts this morning, and we would understand that we've met with you when we leave this place. And that not only today, but as we go through our week, that you would remind us of truths in your word, and that we would go through our encounters the people that we meet, the circumstances that we're involved in, and our first thought would be about you and your word and what you teach us. And so, Lord, help us to be responsible followers of you. We're not just listening to a preacher talk, but we're also taking the word and we're using it for our life's sake and for your glory's sake, so that others potentially will be rescued. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. We pray now that your word will do the work that you've purposed for it to do. Pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to read through these 12 verses. I don't know whether we'll get through all of these today. We'll see how time goes and how much I end up talking. But let's stand together and honor the word of the Lord. And begin now as we start chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
And then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. So you might be tempted to think, gosh, why are we studying the Christmas story here in the middle of July? Well, it just so happens that that's what falls in our path as we're going through the book of Matthew, but I know that you're going to feel the same way that I do, which is just greatly blessed because this is the word of the Lord. And what better thing can we study than the birth of Christ other than maybe the resurrection of Christ? And so I hope that you're excited about this and maybe you're getting a little bit of a a fond feeling for what is coming by way of Christmas as you enjoy the thoughts about this today. Now, I've changed the title about on this message a couple different times, and I've settled on what you see in your bulletin and the back of your bulletin there, which is responses to the king. Now, as Matthew recounts the story, he tells us what a good writer would do in, the, in a narrative. He gives to us a location. He gives to us the characters in the story. And he also gives to us the plot, and there are several of those. I should say there's a main plot, of course, but then there's always underlying things, and there's underlying sub-characters, if you will. So let's just give some of those that information here so we understand the story a little bit. Bethlehem, you know it well. If you haven't been there, it's only about five or six miles just south of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and Egypt, and that will make sense for us as we get into the section where Joseph takes Mary and the baby Jesus into Egypt. The word Bethlehem means house of bread in Hebrew. It's pronounced something like Bethlehem. And so uh, you get that double sound, and uh, that's certainly what it would mean. Now, historically, it's the same place that Jacob buried Rachel. So it's a city that has a lot of history for it, a town that has a lot of history for it. You go back in Genesis 35 and see that. Ruth would meet Boaz there. And also their grandson, but you can't guess who that is. Anybody remember who the grandson of Ruth and Boaz is? David. David. Thank you, you're smart folks. Grew up there and became king of Jerusalem. That's why Bethlehem, though, is called the city of David. Okay? Now, concerning the Magi, people have had a lot of different thoughts about who they are. And I just bear with me as we go through some of this history because there's a lot of things we see at Christmas time that we may just make assumptions about, which is what people have often done, that kind of give us a, a wrong picture of what's really happening there. We really don't have a lot of information about who these people are. In fact, this is really all we have except for what we know of some historical record and what we know from the book of Daniel, which we'll talk about in just a second. So contrary to what you see or have seen in nativity sets and in church plays and even what we put here on Christmas mornings or leading up to Christmas, we really don't know how many magi there were. There's an assumption made that there were three of them because of the three gifts that were given as we just read in the text. But it's possible that their number could have been many more than that. 
and even that they were not just traveling alone, which is typically what you see in the pictures and on the postcards and on the Christmas cards and that kind of thing, but there very well could have been many people traveling with them, and I think you'll understand that better also in just a second. Some people have said that we know what their names are, and if you watch the movies, they'll present these names of the three wise men, which are Caspar, Belthazar, and Malchior. Some will portray one of them as an Ethiopian because of dark skin coming from one of the sons of Noah. So all this stuff is filtered into history, but the reality is we really don't know. We just don't know. God doesn't tell us that kind of thing. In fact, we don't even know how they got to Jerusalem. Some of you are saying, yeah, I know, they rode their camels. Well, maybe. I mean, they may have been in a Honda Accord. I mean, they may have been in a minivan. We don't know how they got to Jerusalem. We just know that they got there. In fact, we don't even really know for sure which country they came from. Okay, so now, I know what's happening in your minds. Your minds are saying, no, but that's not how I've seen it. That's not how it's portrayed. I know these answers to these things. Well, let's just go off of what the text actually says here. And understand that there are a lot of things we just know, don't know. What we do know is that they came from the east, which of course would be east of Israel, according to what Matthew is saying. That's what we don't know. Let's talk about what we do know. What we do know, according to history, as I said a moment ago, is that the Magi first appear way back in the 7th century B.C. So these guys are not new to the historical scene. They've been around for a long time, from a tribe within the country of Mesopotamia. If you're interested at all where Mesopotamia is, today it would be somewhere around the southern part would be Kuwait on up through Iraq into Syria. So that's a big area. But again, all we know is that they came from the east. They were recognized as priests. In fact, they were known to be very skilled in the occult practices. In fact, sorcery was one of them, which is why they're called magi. That's where we get the word magic from. It makes sense. These are magi who perform magic tricks, if you will. They were well-skilled in astronomy and astrology. They were known to be interpreters of dreams, as well as having a great knowledge of science and agriculture and math and history. Now, I'm giving you all of that because you have to understand some of those key points to understand the significance of why Matthew records what he does. These people were very influential, especially over religious and political life. They were the kind of go-to guys that kings would look to as advisors in many ways, which later, of course, would give them a place in leadership of the Babylonian Empire. In fact, in Babylon, again, historically, we know this, that they were very influential there, so much so that a king could not become a king in the Persian region if he weren't first able to pass the tests of the Magi. Okay? So again, you can see that these guys were not just somehow three men sitting on camels who just were wandering along following some bright light and happened to stumble upon Jesus. These people were deep into the school of history and the things that are surrounding them. Now, from, excuse me, from Daniel's book, if you remember with me, Daniel proved to be wiser than the Magi. And we know that from the context of the book. You remember the time that the Magi couldn't interpret the dream of the king, Nebuchadnezzar? 
And Nebuchadnezzar called for someone to do that. They couldn't do it. And they said, hey, there's one of these guys that we took from over in Israel. He's pretty good at interpreting dreams. Let's see what he can do. And sure enough, Daniel comes and he gives the meaning of the dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar places him high up in the status of the royal court there. Which, by the way, would help us to understand how these magi would know anything about the coming of a king in Israel. More than likely, it was through Daniel and his instruction in the time of Iraq, which we call Iraq today, in the time of Babylon, that the Magi would have learned about the Christ. And so it makes sense that they're following what they're believing the prophets to be teaching, as we just read in Matthew's Gospel, to find the Christ child. They would have known the prophecies. Well, how would pagan or Gentile people know who are not a part of the tribes of Israel, from Persia, who was, by the way, an enemy of Israel, know about the coming of the Messiah. Well, it was probably through Daniel and his teachings when he was there in Babylon. And so it really begins to come together in a lot of ways. Now, as my mind began to drift on some of those thoughts, I began to think, sadly, like many Jews of Jesus' day, I wonder how many people who have the written record of God in their hand Think about this with me. And miss Jesus completely. In other words, here we have a record of these magi, these people from another land, who really did not have near what the Jews had given to them. Who didn't grow up with the teachings necessarily that the Jews would have been brought up with. But yet their hearts were really poured out for God. You know, so many people, again, have... The Bible, let's take it to our day today, sitting in their laps week after week after week, hearing over and over and over again the truth of the Lord, but miss Jesus completely. In other words, he becomes kind of a figment of their imagination, if nothing more than just words on a page. There are people who grow up in the churches, and you may be one of these today, have grown up in the church but never really fully investing their lives in the truth about who Jesus is, and act like the book is just another book like the rest of the books out there. And you may say, oh, I don't think that, but the reality is our lives really reflect what we say we believe. And I think the reality is here for Israel as well. And you're going to see again more fully in just a minute, as you just read, they missed Jesus' coming. How did they do that? Well, there's an answer for it in a couple ways, and we'll look at that. Basically, people will just give the Lord good lip service. Of course, again, believing that Jesus is God. Of course, he is Lord, but never really intending to live their lives for him. Debbie was telling me about a guy she was listening to preach this last couple weeks. And he says, isn't it interesting that people will say, I don't really want to have anything to do with the Lord. But when it comes time to die, all of a sudden they want to live with him in heaven. You know, we kind of live our lives like that. People examine, don't examine themselves, but do truly live their lives that way. Well, for the Jews, and think about this just contextually, geographically, here are the Jews in Jerusalem where the Magi are coming into a town, and literally their God is being born five or six miles right down the river. And they didn't even know it. I guess our question this morning would be, if Jesus showed up here, would we even know it? I mean, in fact... If you had the opportunity to tell someone that Jesus was going to be here next week, would anybody even believe that? Would we believe that? 
Do we even believe that even at this very moment the Lord Jesus Christ is in our presence and in our midst? Almost as if we are at the foot of the manger scene that the Magi would soon find here on this text. The reality is the Magi really knew very little about God, but they were given the grace to believe. And they did believe. And they came and they sacrificed themselves, which is exactly why they come to Jerusalem. The Spirit of God had opened their hearts to understanding and believe. And so let me just ask, how long, beloved, have you been under the teaching of God's Word? How many years have you sat under the teaching of God's Word? And so the question to follow that would be, do you believe more today than you did just a few years ago? Do you have the desire to follow God today more than you did just a few days ago? Is your heart hungry? For the things of God. Do you long to see Him? Do you want to know Him better? That should be the swelling tide that grows in the heart of every one of us. We should have that passion. Why? Because as we grow in Him, we want to know more about Him. I have to believe that the Magi, as they studied the Scriptures on their own, evidently, or through some kind of means there in Babylon or wherever they were in the Mesopotamian region, their hearts began to grow more and more and more. Listen, there is a serious problem when we regularly look into the Word of God, but our hearts are not growing. And I'm talking about spiritually. There is a serious problem. There's something missing. What that tells me is either our flesh is driving the soul so much that it doesn't want to hear the things of God, or the soul really doesn't belong to God. The reality is either one of those. This book is not just some good story or a religious relic. And again, our actions prove our belief, right? It's true. We will do exactly what we want to do. You think about your week coming up right now? You will make happen everything that you really want to happen. And you will sacrifice yourself the situation around you, the people around you, the circumstances, to make sure that you get what you really, really want. That's just the way our souls work. That's the way our flesh works. The Magi came many miles over treacherous terrain, through perilous situations, no doubt at great cost, for one reason, and the text tells us what the reason was. Do you see it in the text? They came to do what? To worship. They came to worship. Let me ask you this morning. Did you come here to worship? Are you living your life to worship? Are you hungry for the things of God to worship? To lift up Christ? <clears throat> Let me ask this. What price are you willing to pay for Jesus? To worship him? Or are you lost in the cares and the things of this life that distract you see, now listen, I say this to you all the time, and I really mean this. I'm talking to myself. The message is for me always, just like it is for everybody else. But these are why they are so important questions, because not only are, am I bringing them to you as the pastor here, and the deliverer of the message, but it's for me as well. It penetrates my heart just as much. And we have to ask the same questions. Well, let's go on to another character here just for a minute. Herod. He's mentioned right at the beginning of our chapter. He's the first of several Herods. Herod wasn't his first name. Herod was a title who came to power because of Julius Caesar, who was the head of Rome at the time, appointed 
this Herod's father as governor over the land. And so Herod said, hey, I've got a young son here who would make a great prefect over a certain area. And so Caesar says, that's good. Let's put him as prefect. And so Herod then, the younger man, became prefect over Israel. Now, what's a prefect? It means just what it sounds like. It's a governor or a Roman or controller over a Roman-controlled land. And so that's what Herod was doing. He was not Jew. He was Edumean. That means he was from Edom. Edom was created from Esau. Remember the conflict between Jacob and Esau? So there was always a conflict between the two boys? Well, that's the side of the family that Herod came from. You say, well, why did they call him Herod the Great? Well, it was a result of his success as a leader in Judea. In fact, he disbanded all kinds of factions that were rising up against Rome. And many times the Jews were part of that, you know, the zealots who were trying to overthrow Rome. In fact, in 40 B.C., while in Rome, Jerusalem was invaded by these very Parthians, where the Magi may have come from. That's significant for what we're told in the text here. They came and they overthrew uh, Jerusalem, or invaded at least, and Herod there then was sent back to Israel to drive them back out, and he was able to do that and establish his kingdom. Therefore, he is called Herod the Great, King of the Jews. He became known that way because of his work there in protecting the Jewish region. Well, he didn't care anything about the Jews. He just wanted to have a kingdom that he was dominating. That's the kind of person he was. In fact, to gain some kind of acceptance among the Jews, because he was an Edomite, if you will, he married a Jewish heiress just to look good in the eyes of the Jewish people. And here's a nice-looking lady. Let me marry her, and the people will accept me because she's Jewish, therefore I'm kind of marrying into the family, so to speak. But again, he has no heart for the Jews. But he was successful in getting an alliance in a lot of different ways. He was clever. He was a warrior. I mean, he knew how to fight. He was a diplomat. And all those things, by the way, don't make a good kind of a mix. But at times he was also benevolent. This is very interesting, I think. He, was, uh, uh, he would give back tax money that he collected to the people. In fact, in 25 B.C., he melted down a bunch of gold artifacts and gave that to the people as a benevolent offering, kind of just persuade, persuading the people to follow him. He built theaters, he built racetracks for entertainment, and then in 19 B.C., he built the temple that is now, that was at its height in those days. Later, he would revive Samaria. He built the city of Caesarea, to honor Caesar Augustus, he built Beirut, Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, and he even built the massive fortress of Masada. I mean, so this guy really did have some ties to his claim of being great. And that's how the people looked at him. But he was also a very cruel man. In fact, he was so jealous of his rule, he was constantly suspicious. At one point, he had his brother-in-law, who was the high priest, murdered by drowning. And then he provided a beautiful funeral for him in order to just fake his crime over him so the people would think that Herod really had a heart for him and any other person. But that wouldn't last long because later he killed his wife and his mother and two of his sons for fear that they were trying to take over his rule. 
In fact, history says that five days before his own death, which was about one year after Jesus was born, okay, so it's very close in proximity, and we know that from what Matthew writes as we get to that next time, he had a third son executed. He's a bad dude. And yet most, right before his death, he had a bunch of distinguished Jewish leaders, if you will, in their in uh, Jerusalem, arrested and imprisoned. And because he knew that nobody would cry for him, because nobody was going to be sorry to see him gone after he's dead, he gave the commandment that at the moment of his own death, these leaders were to also be executed. Just to make sure that there was crying and mourning in Jerusalem on the day that he died. This is a pretty cool guy. Pretty wicked. A leader, diplomat, Warrior, very smart, cunning, sharp, but very, very cruel. And probably, of course, most known for his slaughter of all the male children just after Jesus is born. So this is the character you're dealing with. Two different people, people groups, if you will. You have the Magi, people who were not even real followers of the Lord, hadn't had any real training that we know of much. And then you have this one who was actually the earthly king of the Jews. Now, what I hear from these two people is that I hope something that you'll hear this morning is that there are basically two types of people in the world, and that is, number one, those who are the true followers of God. I've already spoken about that just a little bit. The true followers are the ones who are the humble. And Herod was anything but humble. Those that are understanding that they have nothing without God, which is why I was praying that I was this morning, that's what's on my heart always. Lord, I don't have anything to offer you. I don't have anything to give you. What can we give the God of the universe? These people understand that there's nothing to offer Him but the best that they have, willing to sacrifice ourselves. You've heard the time, talent, treasures. Right? Our motive is to give to God to provide for him the things that we can provide. Lord, I don't have much, but I'll give you what I have. I'll give of my resources. I mean, when was the last time you, and this is a question I think we should ask ourselves, when was the last time you did what you did in the honor of the Lord? When you bought something. And you said, Lord, I'm buying this so that I can use it for your glory. I'm going to move into this house or that house or take this job or do that or leave this neighborhood, move into a neighborhood, become friends with someone just for your sake. It's a quite different way of thinking. But see, that's how true believers think because they're overcome and overwhelmed by the graciousness of the Lord. But then there are those who think that they're God's gift to mankind. They always want to look good in front of everybody else, act like they have it all together, and they kind of, sort of, offer service to God. Oh, they may even be regularly faithful in all the attendance things of the church and even the ministry things, doing a lot of service, going through the motions for being for God, but in reality, their life begins to show that they're just faithful. Again, because what's in the heart shows up in the actions. What they really want, like Herod, is just honor for themselves. That's all Herod was doing. Let me show you, Jewish nation, that I'm really the guy that you want to be your king. Oh, and by the way, if you don't want me as your king, I'm just going to kill you. You see, that's not the heart of a true believer. The person who just wants all the control for themselves is the one who just wants to be in the front of the line, 
have the most stuff so they can feel good about themselves, see how much better they're doing than their neighbor to make themselves feel better about themselves. And we see this all the time in the various areas of the world, in the political world. This is not to say that there aren't politicians who are true believers. But there are many people who get caught up in the same kind of thing, those who genuinely want the best for the world and the country, and then there are those who really have only one person on their mind, and that is, number one, me. It doesn't fall far from the scripture. Well, let's get back to the story here now as Matthew records it. As for verses 1 and 2, as the Magi arrive in Jerusalem, they have one thing on their minds. Notice the difference. Herod has himself on his mind and his kingdom. The Magi have one thing on their mind, and that's the Christ child. That's the difference. And they start asking everyone, where's, the, where's this child? Where's the king? And the interesting thing is, as you look at the text, the assumption is they're just kind of wondering, why isn't everybody going to where the king is? Why isn't everybody after him? And why wouldn't everybody be talking about it? I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, think about it. If you had the prophecy given to us here in Charlottesville where God was saying, hey, on this day and this time I'm going to come and I'm going to be the leader over everything, I hope we as the church would be constantly looking for him to come and Hello? Has Jesus not already said that to us? I mean, think about it for a minute. We just finished Revelation. Is Jesus not coming back? I mean, but we don't act like it, do we? I mean, we really don't live our lives as if Jesus is really coming back. But the truth, beloved, is, as sure as I'm standing here and you're sitting there, Jesus could come at this very moment. They see, we're really not much different even from the Hebrews in Jerusalem. They had the prophecy. God even gave to them the glorious, shining brightness of a star. But they missed it. To us, he has given the entirety of his word completely revealed. And too often, we all are victims of following our own ways and our own desires as if Jesus is just a figment of our imagination and he's really not God. Now, that's not meant to be negative. That's just reality. But the truth is, we've got to get ourselves out of that. Either we're going to believe what we say we believe and live for the word of the Lord, as if Jesus is coming. Every second Sunday, we stand here, you sit there, we stand here, deliver the elements to you, and we read the scripture in 1 Corinthians. It says, by taking part in the bread and the juice, what are we doing? We are proclaiming his death, what? Until he comes again. And that's what we're saying. And we have the juice, and we have the, the little uh, matzah cracker, and we're proclaiming that, yes, Lord, we believe that you're coming. Well, all I'm simply reminding us here is what I believe the text is reminding us of, is that we are to look forward to the coming of Christ. We are to be like the Magi, saying to everybody, are you ready for Christ to come? Are you waiting for him? Are you looking forward to him coming? And unfortunately, in this Christian country, which we use very loosely anymore, that's not the mindset of the world, and it's certainly even getting to be not the mindset of the church. And we need to wake up. Now, much to their surprise, the Magi, no one knew about it. It's shocking. It was as if they were blinded, the people of Jerusalem were blinded to this amazing event, and that's because they were. 
They give us a little bit more food here that's interesting. Not because they didn't care enough, that's a big part of it, but they didn't want to see. It's a part of this is you have to want to see. I mean, you can't just come into the church on a Sunday morning and say, okay, God, do all the work. you got to come in with a heart that says, Lord, I want to see. I want you to show me. I want to know what's going on. But again, I'm afraid that too often, and I've talked to my other pastor friends and others around the country and here even in Charlottesville, and they're all saying the same thing. I just wish I could get people excited about who Christ is. It's an interesting conversation. We don't want to be like that. We want to be looking for Him. You know, We don't want to be like the Jews who just because they were Jewish think that they have a ticket to heaven. And that's often what the Jews believe. They don't have any understanding of Scripture. They don't even have any knowledge of a lot of what the Scriptures teach or what anybody what's happened prior to them. They just look at it and say, oh, well, I'm in the Jewish line, so... I must be okay. Well, unfortunately, sometimes Christians do the same thing. I've been a part of the church all my life. I've been doing this and that. I've been to Sunday school. You know how it goes, yada, yada, yada. I must be okay. And that's not reality. The reality is there should be something coming out of our heart that's saying, Lord, I want to know. Teach me and show me. The other part of this, though, is that the Lord has to be opening the eyes. And that's why Jesus would say to the disciples, Lord, pray that there will be workers that go into the field, for the field's ripe. But he would also say this in John's Gospel, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so in our prayer life, we need to be praying not only for our own souls to open up and awaken, but we need to be praying, Lord, open the eyes of other people. In verse 65, John also, in the same chapter, says, no one can come to me of Jesus unless it has been granted him from the Father. Matthew 13, 13. We'll get to this later. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, man's sinfulness has blinded people to the truth. Now I'm talking in two different ways here this morning. I'm not talking to us as the church who are supposed to have our eyes open, right? That's what we're professing. But then there's a whole segment of the world that needs to have their eyes open. Let's just not live our lives as if our eyes are closed. Let's live our life as if, as if they're open, and let's pray that God will open the eyes of those that don't see. That's what we need to be doing. And so as amazing as this event was, apparently the Magi were the only ones that were privy to it, at least according to what we see. So what about this star then that was drawing the Magi? Well, some people have come up with all kinds of conclusions, just like everything else. Some people say it was Jupiter, and Jupiter has been known as the king of the planets. So they say they must have been looking at Jupiter at a certain time of the season. Some say it was Jupiter and Saturn that made the form of a fish, and that's where the symbol of the fish became a Christian symbol, partly as a witness during the Roman persecutions. Others say that it was a flying meteor going over that they were following. Or that there was no star, but only that they felt it in their hearts, like it was some kind of thing that was made up. But Matthew says, no, they followed a star. And so we have to ask, what's Matthew talking about? Well, we assume then it is a physical light from a literal star. Unless we have some other kind of indication. Because maybe there is another explanation, and I would submit this to you that I think there is, 
is that perhaps what these magi were really following was the Shekinah glory of God. Let me help you to see this just a minute. You remember what the Shekinah glory is? It's that same light that the shepherds saw in the fields the moment Jesus was born. The heavens opened up and they were blinded almost literally by the shouting of the announcement of the angels. Or even back in Exodus 13 when the Hebrews were guided in the wilderness by the light. Or in Exodus 24 and 34, the consuming fire when Moses was up on the mountain and the bush wasn't burning, but there was great light there. Possibly the same light that Moses saw as he was leading the Hebrews across the wilderness at night as it would encamp over top of the tabernacle. I think it's very possible that that's what's being talked about here. If you remember back in Acts chapter 9, there was this amazing glorious light that encompassed Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he revealed himself as to who he really was and Peter, to Peter, James, and John. Paul was surrounded. Excuse me, I said in Acts 9, this was in Acts 9. Paul was surrounded by a light from heaven as God knocked him down and blinded him for three days. In Revelation, it was John who saw the face of Jesus shining like the sun. Remember Revelation 1? And also, there's no indication that the, sh the star shone continually here because they had to ask, if you look at the text carefully, where the child is. Well, if they'd been seeing the star or this glory of God the entire time, they wouldn't have had to ask that kind of question. But they became greatly excited when they saw it again as it reappeared to them and followed it to the manger, or to the house, rather. And so I think, for one, it's clear that this was certainly the glory of God, really condensed in God's divine way for the Magi to see, so that they'd be guided to the Christ to worship Him, which was what their goal was. And so it brings up the obvious question again, what is your goal this morning? These are questions that I ask myself. I'm not just coming up with questions to ask you. This is what comes out of me as I'm reading through the text and studying through the text. What is my goal this morning? What am I really looking for this morning? Why have I come? Why did the Magi come? Well, we're told they came to worship. Is that our heart? Are we here this morning really because we want to worship? In other words, if God used some means to draw you to Him, what's the goal from that time and forever? What would it be that you'd be thinking about? Is it something from Him like Herod, or is it to worship Him? In other words, are you just here this morning like so many people who just say, Lord, I just gotta, you just got to give me something this morning. And that's not a wrong request, so don't hear that. But too often that's the focus. I come to church because I need something from God. i got to get something from God. Well, listen to that. When we read the text, we find out that we have everything from God. We've been given His Spirit. We've been sealed by His redemptive promise to fill us with His Spirit every moment of our life. That's not the problem. The problem is we're coming with the wrong heart. We're coming out of selfish motives, looking for God to do something for us that He doesn't need to do because if we put our promises, our hope in His promises, then we have everything that we need. That doesn't mean that He doesn't come alongside us when we're struggling and need an extra boost and a reminder. That's what we're doing this morning. We're reminding ourselves, just like we do every week. What does the Lord say? What is my purpose? What is my goal? Why am I here? 
Why did God make me like this? We're made to worship. The Magi weren't looking for something. Herod was looking for something. Herod was looking for the threat to his kingdom. Isn't it interesting that often we feel in our flesh a threat to our kingdom? If I open the door and let Christ in too much, then I'm going to be threatened by what I really want. And I can't have that because then I won't be the king of my throne. And if I'm not the king of my throne, then I can't manipulate life to make things go the way that I want them to go. If I surrender to Jesus as the king of my life, then I'm bound to what he wants. It's a strange paradox. What do I do? What's the answer? I think you know the answer. Jesus came to rescue us from the bondage of our own sinful selves. That's why he came. He didn't have to come. Jesus did not have to come. He came to rescue us from the penalty of sin against us and the sin that we so desperately love. I was just talking with somebody just the other day, and they actually made that comment about somebody they were talking to. They said, this person I was talking to was talking about another person they were talking to, how this person they were talking to was saying, I like to sin because it's pleasurable. It's fun. It's enjoyable. I get to do what I want to do. But if I'm under the control of God, then I have to do what He wants me to do. And you and I who are saved would say, Oh, foolish man. Why would you ever want to live like that? It's the blindness and the deception of the flesh and of saved himself. So what's your goal? Let's keep moving here. Notice in verse 3, Herod was troubled, and it says, so was Jerusalem. I want to spend just a minute on this, and then we'll, we'll be done. Herod was troubled, and so was all Jerusalem. Well, we've already answered this some, but why? Why was Herod troubled? And, and then more so, why was Jerusalem troubled? That's a very interesting statement, isn't it? Well, because Jesus was a threat to him. We already know that. His kingdom, his power. And many, many people feel Jesus is a threat for them, to them. We've already said that. Often you'll hear people say, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Just repeating the thought. The focus is on themselves because they really want the power and the control. And I didn't say this, but listen to this. Herod was so enamored with his own control, not only was he willing to do what he wanted to do, but he was even willing to sacrifice people to get what he wanted. You say, oh, I would never do what Herod did. Really? You may not kill them physically, but if it's something you really, really want, you will leave that person out in the cold in a heartbeat to get what you want. You say, oh, no, 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 no. I would never do that. I mean, I have friends. I have people that I love. Well, listen, can I tell you about the number of people over the years that I've known who have left friends because of what they wanted instead of holding on to the people that were important in life and who encouraged and nurtured them and led them along when the situation arose to have to make a decision based on what I think is best in my flesh versus what I think is best in a relationship, we will also sacrifice those people that we love. It happens all the time. It may be more subtle than other times, but we will do that. You just think about it. I can't come up with all the scenarios that you may have experienced over the years, but you just think about it. If a situation really intensifies, I will make the decision to cut off 
communication and love and feelings and devotion to some person over here in order to really have what I want over here. That's really wickedness, beloved. That's the flesh. Because the Lord tells us we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We are, the standard is loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. Why did Jesus make that standard? Because he knows how much we love ourselves, right? Because we will sacrifice to the end of the world for ourselves. Jesus says, okay, go do that for your neighbor. Live that way for your neighbor. It's pretty sad, well, why was Jerusalem troubled? Well, I think there are three reasons. One, because Herod was troubled. You ever heard the phrase, when mama's not happy, nobody's happy? Well, in this case, when the boss is not happy, nobody's happy. You ever worked in a situation like that? Or if the boss was grumpy, everybody else got grumpy? I mean, how many of you all have ever worked for a tyrant? And you know that every morning that you walk in on Monday morning, it's going to be pretty volatile? I mean, that's kind of the way it works. You never know what's going to happen when the explosion's going to go off. Some of you know people like that. Some of you have family members like that. We're just never quite sure whether the nitroglycerin is going to explode right now or not. You kind of walk on eggshells all the time. I mean, one day is great. The next day you don't want to be found. I just soon stay away from you. It's as if it's your fault. The world is a mess. That's what the boss makes you think. Right? It's your problem. I know you're the person who delivers the sandwiches, but it's your problem that the company's going down. I mean, it's that kind of thing, you know. People knew Herod was volatile, killing everybody that suspected that he suspected was against him. So why wouldn't they be troubled? I mean, here are these people marching into Jerusalem in their entourage, in their flowing gowns and their their enormity of who they may have had with them, and all of a sudden everybody's getting a little bit troubled. Who in the world are these people? And by the way, again, remember, Herod had once run them out of town. At least that nation. And so now they're marching back in. Well, you can see where that'd be a little unnerving. I mean, it'd be like us here in Charlottesville saying on August the 12th, if the group who came in a couple years ago marched back into town, everybody's going to be a little nervous, right? It's the same kind of thing. Go back into the homes. You know, you talk about, we're talking about businesses and people you've worked for. As I mentioned a second ago, think about the homes you've grown in growing up in, maybe you'd say, you know, my dad was a jerk. And some people will say that, and if other choice words come to mind. Some people will say, yeah, my mom, she was a witch. And you don't want anything to do with either one of them. Because you know what that was like. Whatever the case, they greatly influenced you because those who lead us greatly influence us. Let's keep going. Some of you have lived your spiritual lives under spiritual tyrants. Some of you have come from churches that the pastor was a dictator. And you never really felt like you were part of the family. In fact, you felt manipulated. And everything that you did just made you sad. Or everything that happened in the church just felt distant. And it really severely affected your relationship with the church. Your relationship with the Lord even, maybe. Some people just never even go back to church as a result of being under that kind of thing. Maybe your family doesn't want to have anything to do with church because of the way you were treated. You know, kids grow up in environments and they see what mom and dad go through. And a lot of times they just don't want anything to do with church. I was just talking to a guy at the gym the other day and uh, he was asking me a question about being a pastor. And he just said to me, he says, I've had a particular disdain for religion most all my life. 
Now, you and I, who are theologically astute, would say, yeah, we would too, because we don't like religion, we like relationship. But understand, he didn't understand the distinction. So whatever's going on in his life caused him to have a particular disdain for the church. Well, that comes from something. He didn't just wake up one morning and decide he was going to hate the church. Now, his sin may have told him that, but he probably was tutored somewhere along the line to say that I don't want to have anything to do with those people. So that's part of the problem. And then there's the historical problem. Again, as I've already mentioned, the Magi were large in number. Maybe this was a threat to them. And the third thing I suppose is possible as well, as well is that when the leader is wicked, the people become wicked. That's possible too. Not only were they maybe afraid of Herod, but the people also become wicked. The people follow. In other words, people take on the personality of their leader, and that's so true. Those of you who are sports people, and you watch our favorite sport is basketball, but you can pick any sport that you want. Just mark it down. This season, as the seasons start to play more and more and more, pay attention to how the coach reacts on the sidelines. And you know what you'll see? You'll see the players react the same way as the coach. If the coach is calm in his demeanor, like our brother Tony Bennett here at UVA, and he's a human just like the rest of us, but if you watch brother Tony, you will see the players follow suit. And he'll get after them. I've seen him do it. There was one time on the television program when I think it was Jack Saul went up for a dunk and he held onto the rim too long and Tony got right up in his face and did like this and he was telling him, he says, we don't do that. Now I'd have to go through a lot of that to help you understand, but that's not how we act. But you watch other coaches and they will very much teach their players to react the same way. I'll never forget one time years ago, Debbie will remember this, we were at a YMCA soccer game for uh, Jordan, I think it was. I don't remember who it was. It was in Lynchburg. One of the kids. And um, the game was going on. This was just a Saturday morning. And one of the kids was out there, and he was doing a really good job. He was going in for the ball and all this stuff. But I started to notice that Dad starts walking up and down the sideline, yelling out to the son, saying, Don't listen to that referee, son. You listen to me. Take his legs out from under Cut him out. He was yelling stuff like this. And finally, we all started realizing as parents, what is this knucklehead doing? And one lady said something to him, and he turned around to her and said, shut up! YMCA little kid soccer game. Well, what was happening was the little kid was listening to Dad, and who do you think he's going to become like? So he's out of the game, and he starts listening to Dad. He doesn't listen to the referee, and he starts doing the illegal moves that Dad's trying to get him to do. I mean, we follow the leaders. The heart takes on the personality of the ones who lead us. And so I think the answer to the question very easily could be that the, 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 the people in Jerusalem were upset because they also had become very similar to their leader. I mean, he had doled out to them some benevolent things, right? Hey, you do what I want, I'll cut your taxes. You do what I want, I'll build bigger things. If you don't do what I want, I'll cut your throat. Don't think that a big part of the world's problem today is not because of the examples that we have to follow. In other words, let me say it the other way. The reason the world is in a lot of ways it is is because of the examples we have in leadership. And I'm not talking about anybody in particular, so don't hear that. Just look at the world. 
All right, just a couple more thoughts and we'll be done. Look at what Herod does to keep his power. Verse 4, he gathers together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquires of them where the Messiah is to be born. You know by now that the chief priests were the Jewish priests, so he's not gathering his own. He's gathering the Jews to say, hey guys, tell me what the scriptures say. What's going on here? The scribes were like the Pharisees or the, the lawyers of the Jewish law. So he's gathering all the important people. It'd be like us going to say in Marks and Marks and Marks and Marks, whoever these guys are down here, right, in front of Chick-fil-A and say, hey, you guys come, we need some information from you. And notice what they said. Yeah, it's true, Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea in verse 5. But this is what's been written about him by the prophets. And you, Bethlehem, pretty clear. And they weren't talking about Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. That didn't exist yet. Land of Judah, or by no means the least of the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. That's all according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which was written 400 years at least prior to this event happening. So, being crafty and hypocritical like he was, look at verse 7. Herod secretly, that's interesting, isn't it? Called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you found him, report to me, so that I may come and worship him. I mean, that's really what I want to do. I just want to join you in worship. That's not what Herod wanted to do. He wanted to destroy him. And we know that by the edict that he pronounces about killing all the male children just after he finds that they leave by another direction. We'll see that next time. By this time, though, historically, you just need to understand, Jesus was not uh, two years old, like some have said. It doesn't seem to fit the context. But Herod wanted to make sure. And so I think he set the bar high. And he says, anybody this age and younger, kill them. It doesn't mean that Jesus was at least two years of age. Now, he was older because we find that they went to the house. Jesus was no longer lying in the manger. Notice, as I said, he calls them secretly. We have to ask, why secretly? Well, I think there are a couple reasons. It goes back to the leadership. Some leaders want everything done in the dark. I don't want anybody to know about what I'm doing. They're afraid to let the people know what they're doing. You know, because silence can be really controlling, Right? The less information you have, the more I can control you. In fact, have you ever tried to get information from somebody in authority who didn't want to give you information? It's a very controlling kind of thing. They say that's all you need to know. Your parents will do that at times, and I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just simply saying sometimes our excuse as parents is when we don't have the answer is, oh, you don't need to know that right now. I'll tell you later. Instead of when the child gets inquisitive and they want to know, we'll keep it in the dark because we're afraid of our own leadership and our own insecurity in our own homes. And so we'll withhold information just so we can keep control on the children or the wife or the husband. It can work any of those ways. Keeping it all in the dark. But you know, people aren't stupid. Kids aren't stupid. They figure it out real quickly. They know what's going on. You know, I've often thought, and we've often talked about this before, that kids have a whole lot more intellect in them than we give them credit for. When nobody else can see through your heart, guess who can see through your heart? Your kids. Every time. Every single time. It's like God gives them the supernatural ability to see what's really going on in the heart of mom and dad. I mean, they may not know that until a little later in life. 
But when they get of age, they can tell everything that's going on. We're not hiding anything from them. I think in this case, Herod was saying knowledge is power, and that's why he wanted to do this secretly. He didn't know the answer. And so he couldn't let the people know, so he had to call them privately so he could keep the lid on everything and keep it under control because he knew what he was really wanting to do. If the Jews found out that this really was the fulfillment of the prophecy, that the Messiah was coming, guess what they would have done? The multitude would have worshipped. They would have gone after him. And Herod knew that. And the only way to keep that from happening was, hey, you guys, come tell me real quietly, where'd you find this out? So I can come and worship. And then we'll have this big party, and everybody will have fun, we'll have watermelon, and in the morning we'll make waffles. You know what movie that came from? Just don't answer. You understand? That's how people work. Instead of just being open, the Magi came in and said, Where's the Christ child? Hey guys, celebrate! Let's have a joyful day. We're from over across the mountain. We've come all this way. We really want to celebrate with you. And Herod's like, No, I'm not going to do that. Because you're going to be a threat to my kingdom. They had no idea of his intentions, so they kept their plan. Again, once again, guided by the, the star. And as I said, the star this time led them right to the house. Look at verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way in the star, which they had seen in the east. That's an indication that it had somewhat disappeared from them. Went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And look at their response. What a beautiful response. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Man, what a response. They hadn't even found the baby yet. They just saw the star again. They saw the glory of God. And their hearts jumped inside. That's what that means. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground, and they did what they came for. They worshipped him. And they opened their treasures, and they presented gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They worshipped. And notice this. They didn't worship Mary. Okay? I just want to throw that. I want to be clear about that. They didn't worship Mary. They worshipped Jesus. And they literally fell to the ground. That's what it says. What were they doing? They were acknowledging him as Lord. Kyrios. It's a Greek word for sovereign one. Master. You are the king. Now remember, as I told you, historically the Magi's job was to test the king. Test the candidate for kingdom, for the, for the kingship in the Persian land. If the guy didn't pass the test, he wasn't going to be the king. In fact, the Magi were the ones who were the present uh, participants in the coronation of the king. And so here we see these great leaders from their own land come and they bow to a child in a stable, in a manger, acknowledging him as king. And their hearts were overwhelmed with excitement. And not only did they worship their hearts, but they brought in gifts, which is an expression of worship. I mean, to give someone a gift is an expression of honor, right? It's a way that we say to people that we appreciate them, to recognize them as special. In the church, we bring our gifts to God. Now listen carefully. 
We bring our gifts to God. What gifts do we have for Christ? Do you have a bunch of gold lying around? Do you have a bunch of frankincense? Do you have a bunch of myrrh lying around? No, neither do I. Now, some people might have gold. We want to get to know you after the service. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. We don't have that kind of thing typically. What do we have then? We have our hearts. That's our treasure. Our treasure is inside of us. It says, Lord, here I am. I'm laying myself down at your feet. My talents, my abilities, but mostly I'm giving to you my heart, which is a great cost to us, is it not? Is it not a great cost to us to give him our hearts? It's a huge cost. It requires every fabric of us, everything that makes us up. But nothing else will satisfy. It was King David who said in Second um, Samuel 24, 24, I will not offer God anything that costs me nothing. Oh, but listen, what a lesson. This, how's your life? What's your worship like? What are, you, are you giving to God something that costs you something? Does it cost you your emotions? Does it cost you your talent? Does it cost you your willingness? Your desire to be open, to see souls saved, your energy level, it costs us. But that's what true worship is. And it wasn't because it was a requirement of the Magi. They just did it. Why? Because that's what the heart does. You know, when we love someone, again, we want to express to them our love. And how do we typically do it? We do it with some kind of gift. God says, what's your gift to me, church? It's not your things. It's your heart. That's what I want. I want your heart. That's what the Lord is looking for. I'll just read you a quick quote here. God, excuse me, giving that is generous, but done apart from a loving relationship with God is empty giving. Learning that is orthodox and biblical, but is learned apart from knowing and depending on the source of truth is empty knowledge, like that of the chief priests and scribes. Service that is demanding and sacrificial, but done in the power of the flesh or for the praise of men, is empty service. Empty service. God doesn't want your stuff. He wants your heart. Now they gave three specific gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was to honor him as the king. Frankincense was a costly perfume or an incense that was used in very special occasions. We see in the scripture of Leviticus and the Song of Solomon of the grain offerings and the royal processions and weddings. It was used for the priests of all priests. That's what it was symbolizing. And the myrrh was a less expensive perfume than frankincense, but still very valuable, used as spices for the burial of the bodies. And we see that in John 19 as Nicodemus who came to him by night earlier when Jesus had died, brought about 100 pounds of this myrrh to anoint the body of Christ. And so way back before Jesus even begins his life, on this earth as his leadership and his spiritual leadership, these magi, these men, come from a long ways and they offer to him symbols of what his life will represent. A beautiful picture. And lastly, we're told, as they prepare to leave, God intervenes once again, and this is where we'll pick up next time, Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Can you imagine, just for a second, the conversation between the Magi? If you're just a little fly on the wall, just think about what that conversation would have been like. The experience that they had been having. Can you imagine 
what witnesses they were for the Lord Christ as they left there. Can you imagine what it was like when they got back to their people in Macedonia and shared all that they had been through in the preceding months and however long it took? Isn't that the way we should go forth from this place? I mean, shouldn't we just go out these doors as if we're going into our homes after what we've learned from God on a Sunday morning or in our own private time throughout the week and be excited to share the blessings of all that God has done for us? And we say that with our words and we say that with our lips, but our actions don't. Aren't you glad that God is a gracious God? Aren't you thankful that the Lord is slow to anger, compassion, long-suffering, because we really don't do what the Lord asks us to do. We do what we want. We are so like Herod. Again, we wouldn't stick a knife in somebody's throat, but boy, we'll stick a knife in their soul. We'll stick a knife right in their emotions. We'll stick a knife right in everything that's about them just to get one. God is gracious with us. He's kind. He's patient. Let's not make him be those things. Let's give him joy as we go here today, from here today, and serve him with a willing heart, looking for Christ to come back. Can we do that? Let's just make up our minds that that's what we're going to do today as we leave here. All right? All right. Let's pray together. Father, as we listen to the testimony of the Magi, and we listen to the testimony of Herod, and we listen to the testimony of all Jerusalem. We really do find, as we think through the text, that our hearts are really not much different than the wicked ones. Lord, because we see the wickedness of our own heart, it just magnifies for us the joy of your grace that's come into us. And so for that, Lord, we worship you. And I have to believe that as the Magi learned centuries before through Daniel, it becomes very apparent as to why there was the captivity. It was not only because of the sin of Israel, but because you had another plan. You would fulfill all of this those many years before. But I have to believe that as those Magi began to learn more and more and more about the coming Christ, Their hearts just began to see their own flesh more and more, just like we do every time we read your word and hear your word preached. And we're reminded of how gracious you are, how merciful, how compassionate. Thank you, Father, as we worship you and are leaving today for your Son that came to pay the debt of our sin, to pay the price, to take upon himself everything that we could not do for ourselves. Lord, we worship you. We honor you as a church family. We ask that you be quick to forgive us and remind us of not being like Herod's. In fact, that should become our buzz phrase with each other. Now, don't be like a Herod. Lord, may we be like the Magi who are just full of excitement, looking for Christ to come. Lord, we long for the day you're coming, and we believe. We know you're coming back. Lord, help us to live like you're coming back. Lord, Honor yourself in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand.
thank you so much. We thank you for your son Jesus who, who came to die for us, to pay a price that we couldn't pay. And Lord, we just we ask your forgiveness of the times that, that we do act like a Herod, that we, we do things just because we want it, because we want to do it for ourselves and not for you. But Lord, we know that you are, you are merciful and you are a God of love. And we thank you so much for that. So send us out this week, Lord. Help us to, to show that love to those that we come in contact with, to be that light that shines that will bring people closer to you. These things I pray in your son's Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.